0: This is Fifteen Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs, featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. Fifteen Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin.
1: Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, and today we're talking with Carl Hagstrom Miller. Hi, Carl. Hey. hey. Carl is a specialist in U.S. history, and especially in music history, and he's the author, first of all, of our theme song here on Not Even Past, which you just heard as the intro to this video. He's also the author of a book called Segregating Sound, Inventing Folk and Pop Music in the Age of Jim Crow, and that's the book that we're featuring this month. Um, So let me start by asking you uh, about the categories that um, get imposed on music in, at the turn of the century. I mean, most people probably think it's normal to associate certain styles of music or specific songs with a culture, ethnicity, uh, class, whatever. Um, but it was really only at the turn of the century that something like this came about. Can you talk a little bit about those categories and how they came about? Sure, sure.
0: Yeah, I, I found it fascinating. This was kind of the heart of my uh, um getting started on this book was was reading about contemporary uh popular music which is often divided into uh racial and ethnic categories and you can just see that going to a record store if you can find one uh or a bookstore and uh, different shelves uh for different uh genres of music uh you have the blues and jazz over here and you have country western over here and you have rock which is largely categorized uh primarily as, uh, uh, white musicians, uh, this time. And I was wondering, where did these categories come from? Um, and I started looking back and discovered that they really came about at this moment in the late 19th, early 20th century, where a lot of different things are changing in the way that people, uh, buy music, the way they write about music and, uh, the way they listen to music. And so, a lot of what we think we know about popular music actually emerged at this time, late nineteenth early twentieth century.
1: Uh, okay, so one of the distinctions that comes about is uh, um, a distinction between folk music on the one hand and and popular commercial music mm-hmm. um, it, ma- it makes sense that musicians sit around and play whatever comes their way. Um, why was it so important to make that distinction at this time?
0: Well, I think one thing that happens, uh, essentially, I, f- I find three three groups are central to this book, and three three groups of players uh, or people um, really started interacting in new ways at this uh, period. And those groups are uh, musicians in the South who had been there all along, of course. Um, uh, a record industry uh, that is new. Um, recordings really start taking off in uh, around nineteen o five, nineteen oh six. Uh, And they spread across the North and the South and the globe, in fact. Um, And this is a a completely fresh and novel way of making music, listening to music, and buying music. It's this moment when music actually gets separated from the musician uh, for the first time, right? And that has dramatic effects on the way people conceive of the identity of the music as separate from the identity of the musician because there had never even been an opportunity to contemplate that before. Um, So musicians, music industry, and I also think that academics at the time, particularly uh, folklorists, uh, were instrumental in this shift. At the same time that record companies were um, distributing this new technology and new records across the South, folklorists were moving into the South uh, looking for um, particular kinds of music and not others. And it's at this moment when records, uh, musicians... Uh, are permeating the South, that folklorists begin talking about the South as a repository of older styles of music, more authentic, more true, more genuine styles of music, uh, as a way of distinguishing them from this commercial ditties that they didn't like very much.
1: So let's talk about the technology a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got technology that can now mass-produce sheet music and technology that can mass-produce recordings, and as you said, send them around the world. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, this um, categorization was technology market and market-driven primarily?
0: Well, I wouldn't say primarily. Um, what I think was really fascinating is the way in which uh, record companies and record technology kind of interacted with uh, academics and uh, folklorists in this kind of cauldron of the South, in the nineteen uh, early 20th century. And it, I think you've got to look at both of those in order to figure out how it happened. Um, one thing that's interesting about technology is uh, I try to look very closely at the kind of big stages of technological change in the recording industry at the time. And they have dramatic effects for the kind of music that gets recorded and uh, the kind of musicians that have an opportunity to record. Um, and there's you mean,
1: which musicians? Yeah,
0: well, there, there's kind of two or three different uh, um, flashpoints. Um, Number one, in the early 20th century, uh, there was severe patent control on recording technology. So it meant that very few companies had access to uh, the technology. These companies were all located in or around New York City. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the recording technology was so bulky and uh, um, fragile that you couldn't move it. So all the recordings took place in New York. Um, Any musician that wasn't from New York had to go to New York to make the recording. And this resulted in a commercial uh, music industry, record industry, that primarily pushed New York music out to the world, right? This changes in 1917 when the patents disappear, uh, the patent controls disappear. You have a proliferation of small record companies popping up. At the same time, uh, record technology has gotten uh, uh, more mobile, so you're able to start taking uh, record technology around uh, the country in a way that you hadn't before, giving access to uh, more musicians, and because all these independents were scraping around trying to find a niche that they could serve, you get a lot more uh, diversity. It's not just New York anymore, it's not just Broadway tunes that are being recorded, it's uh, just about anything that these uh, small labels could find, mm-hmm. so technology has a direct kind of connection to the history of access to the recording studio
1: so who are some of your favorite song collectors and uh, and uh, people who st- who are some of your favorite characters?
0: Well, this book is filled with a lot of characters, so it's kind of hard for me to hard for me to pick them out. Um, a number of the characters pop up just for one brief moment and then disappear. But a number of characters kind of run through the book and those are the ones that I kind of think are, are the most interesting to talk about. One of my favorites is uh, James Weldon Johnson. James Weldon Johnson is well known to students of African American history. He wrote uh, what came to be known as the uh, uh, the Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Uh, he was a uh, politician and an activist uh, and a writer. Uh, but not as much is talked about um, is said about his uh, his early songwriting career. He, he and his brother uh, moved from small-town Florida up to New York to make it in the uh, commercial theater business in, uh, I think it was around uh, 1899. And they wanted to be songwriters. And he spent a long time writing songs, and he actually kind of transformed what were quite derogatory uh, Uh, minstrel-inspired songs that were dominating uh, uh, Broadway at the time into a much more kind of sophisticated, uh, uh, anti-racist style of uh, um, pop song. And he ended up becoming wildly successful at this. He wrote a book in 1912 called uh, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, uh, anonymously at the time, published it anonymously, and it was a story that kind of paralleled his his experience in his life, where he, the main character, uh, goes to the big city, um, becomes popular, uh, uh, ragging the classics, becoming a ragtime pianist, and then travels to the South in search of old slave songs and folk material that he can use to write um, highbrow, highfalutin uh, pop music, music. Uh, uh, serious music. Um, James Weldon Johnson later rejected uh, the pop music world, thought that it was not as anti-racist and actually contributed to these minstrel stereotypes. And by the 1920s, he, like many of his uh, peers, became much more interested in this concept of folk culture and folklore. And so he kind of follows one of the major trajectories of the book.
1: So you've talked about the, um, the process of distinguishing pop commercial music from folk music. How does the, the color line get established?
0: Something happens in the collision between academics, musicians, and uh, the recording industry at this time um, that shifts music from being uh, relatively free of distinct racial identity to having music be marketed and understood by academics as indicative of different racial or ethnic cultures. Um, This is a major shift. And the reason that I spent so much time writing about it is we're still living in this shift, that a lot of our uh, scholarship and a lot of what we understand about music still fits into this uh, mold of understanding Mm -hmm. it in racial or ethnic Mm -hmm. terms. Um, What I call segregating sound, this process of actually splitting apart um, uh, music into separate racial categories, uh, established a musical color line, black on one side, white on the other. And I argue that it happened at the same time and in many ways because of the Jim Crow segregation color line that was being developed across the South at the very same time. So you have corporations, you have academics descending into the South, trying to buy, uh, trying to sell or discover songs. At the same time, they're encountering this very new um, racial regime of uh, Jim Crow segregation. And they tend to take the songs that they're finding within these newly segregated spaces and read this segregation back into the history of uh, the South by making the argument that um, races are different, that they have different cultural histories that are separate. They actually kind of naturalized uh, the regime of segregation that was so fresh and being put in place. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. Yeah. Well, thank you. Very interesting, Carl. Thank you very
0: much. Well, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.